John Patrick woke up and he knew that something was wrong. The first thing that he was aware of was how cold he was. His skin felt tight and clammy and his whole body was shaking, his heels pattering against the cold steel base of his hypersleep chamber. As his mind slowly returned to him, he began taking stock of his surroundings and quickly realized that he could not feel his fingers. In a moment of terror, he jerked his hands towards his face and every joint in his arms cracked. The backs of his hands smacked against the cramped metal walls and his nerves flashed to life. John opened his mouth in a silent scream and slowly peeled his eyelids open. His hands were still there. So were his toes. His body felt plastic. It took more strength than John had to keep his head upright, and so his head slouched down to his shoulder and his eyelids shut themselves and John fell back asleep. John's stomach woke him up sometime later. He blinked several times to clear the fog from his vision as his brain slowly turned itself back on. His stomach growled again, his body clenched in pain. With all of his strength, mental and physical, John grabbed the top of the chamber walls and pulled himself to an upright position. The air burned his throat, which he now realized was completely dry, as was his mouth. His tongue felt like an old sponge. There was a single emergency light on overhead. It cast long, hazy shadows over the cramped interior of the ship, which was just big enough to park a sedan in. As John stood up, his hair brushed against the ceiling. He immediately regretted it. His vision went blurry and his legs quivered under his own weight. The ship seemed to spin around him. The harder he tried to regain his balance, the more he shook, until finally he clasped the side of his hypersleep chamber with both hands and crumpled over, his stomach heaving. But nothing came out. The hairs on his neck stood on end and his tongue flailed out of his open mouth as his body convulsed again and again, but there was no vomit. John couldn't even gather up enough saliva in his mouth to spit. After a minute, John's body relaxed and he managed to raise his head to look around. He found himself staring at his wife. Her face was less than three feet away from his, the two separated only by the thick sheet of frosted glass that sealed her hypersleep chamber. John smiled and noticed several drops of sweat running off of his forehead and pooling on the silver rim of his own chamber. Slowly, he brought himself to one knee, and then he rested for a bit, allowing his body to recompose itself before raising himself up to one foot. With several deep breaths, John managed to bring himself to both feet, allowing his upper half to smoothly curl upwards afterward, as he had seen Megan do during her yoga sessions in their living room back home in Michigan. His head spun for a minute. But with a couple of deep breaths, John managed to stabilize himself. His legs were still trembling, so he supported himself with his hands as he climbed over the edge and slid into the narrow gap between his and Megan's chambers. It was so narrow that he had to stand with his feet turned sideways. Looking down on her, he thought that if he just tapped on the glass, she might wake up. She looked like she was simply taking a nap. A very, very long nap. John Patrick shuffled his way towards the foot end of the room and quickly found the water tap in the wall there. He put his mouth to the spigot and pressed the glowing blue button. Cool water rushed out, nearly choking him at first. John drank until he felt that he was going to burst. The water sloshed back and forth in his empty stomach. After a moment, John collapsed onto his side and began vomiting. When John had finished and his body had relaxed, he pulled himself back up to his feet. According to the meter on the wall, he had just drank and thrown up about half the water that was on board. 
the tank must have been even smaller than the ones that were installed in the small lunar cruisers that he had sold his job at the dealership back in Dearborn. Of course, those were designed for a crew that would be conscious for their entire trip. This tank, roughly the size of the old office water coolers, was here more as a courtesy than anything. After all, nobody was supposed to be conscious on this ship from the time it took off from Earth until five minutes before they touched down on Kepler-694b. So why was he awake, and why wasn't Megan? John shambled over to the small porthole window above his chamber. He leaned over the metal chamber and gazed out. There was nothing but blackness. They were still in deep space, or at least nowhere near Kepler's atmosphere. John's eyes adjusted, and he began to see several stars, pinpoints of light in the distance, but no planets anywhere. A flush of cold adrenaline washed over his body and dropped into his stomach. He made his way over to the small console at the head of the room and pushed the power button. The system woke up and screens hummed to life, while several other overhead lights in the ship fizzled on and gave the room a dull glow. While the system booted, John looked back over his shoulder, half expecting the blackness to snake its way through the porthole and swallow him whole. A welcome message flashed on the screen before taking John to the command prompt. He was no expert at these systems, and he only knew enough about the operating systems in the lunar shuttles to demonstrate them in his sales pitches. The system looked vaguely familiar, but he didn't recognize many of the commands, and the layout of the controls looked completely foreign. It was clear, however, that the computer was being run on autopilot. After scanning the screen for a minute, John found the information panel and navigated to it. The screen began displaying all of the details of the trip and of the craft itself. John read and reread each line until they got to one that stuck out. 78 years. They were still 78 years from Kepler. John's breathing became rapid and short. He glanced back over his shoulder. Megan was still sleeping soundly. His hands began to shake. He began quickly scrolling through different control centers on the console, but none of them looked familiar, and the words soon began blurring together as tears welled in his eyes. John climbed back into his hypersleep chamber and pulled the lid back over him, making sure it locked into place. He closed his eyes and tried to fall back asleep. Surely he must be dreaming, and would soon wake up next to Megan on their final descent towards Kepler, or back in their bed in Dearborn, and it would be December 3rd, the morning of the trip, and Megan would be sleeping quietly next to him, and he could wake her up and they'd get in the beat-up old Ford and drive down to the space depot. But it was not a dream. John's body was too energized to fall back asleep, but he refused to move. It simply wasn't possible that he was actually awake right now. Humans had mastered interstellar travel years ago. He wouldn't have packed up his entire existence and taken Megan to start a life on a planet in another solar system if tens of thousands of people hadn't blazed the trail before them. He wasn't a pioneer. He was just a man who wanted to start a family, and he couldn't afford the fee to have a child on Earth. He clenched his eyes tightly, but his mind continued to run and would not rest. He tried to remember how the doctors had put him to sleep before the trip, but that entire morning was largely a blur. They'd injected him with a relaxant before actually putting him to sleep, in order to calm his nerves. That relaxant seemed to shut down large parts of his brain, because the only memories he had from after the injection were nothing more than hazy flashes of a word here or a single image there. Megan smiling, squeezing her hand as they lay on twin gurneys. Nothing concrete, nothing useful. 
but it all felt like it had happened just that morning. The hypersleep was timeless and dreamless. In his memory, nothing but the blink of an eye separated the moment that he finally succumbed to the gases and went under, and the moment that he woke up at the bottom of his hypersleep chamber. John Patrick's brain pondered this and many other questions, the panic slowly draining from his immediate thoughts until he finally fell asleep. He woke up several hours later. When he realized where he was, he began screaming and sobbing, his voice echoing around the inside of the chamber and frightening him, until he began ramming his fists into the side of the chamber. He put his left hand straight through the glass lid. It stung and began leaking blood. John screamed louder and longer until he was drained of breath and lay back in the chamber, crying and defeated. To calm himself, he began taking deep breaths and soon was able to pull himself out of the chamber and back to the console. Slowly, examining each option on screen, he managed to navigate to a communications portal. The ship was several years outside of the radio range for both Earth and Kepler, and there were no other ships in the immediate area. There would be no rescue. He found the flight log by accident as he tried to maneuver back to the main control panel. The computer showed that he and Megan were both sound asleep in their respective chambers. John slammed his good fist through the keyboard, shattering it, and then he kicked the monitor. His foot went right through the glass, and after several moments of struggling, he finally managed to pull it back out. The system sizzled, its fans humming loudly, and then died. The lights in the ship went out, except for the emergency light. John slouched down against the wall, blue electricity occasionally shooting through the circuits that were now exposed above his head. There was a compartment next to the water spot that John hadn't noticed before. With considerable effort, he moved to the other side of the ship and opened it, tenderly, with his right hand, which was the less cut up of the two. Inside were the complimentary snacks, meant to ease he and Megan back into consciousness and kickstart their bodies, welcoming them to Kepler. A pair of freeze-dried ice cream sandwiches, two small boxes of dehydrated fruit. With the water, they would sustain John for perhaps two or three more miserable, starved weeks of inactivity. He opened the box and began to pick slowly at the fruit so as to not throw up again. He didn't taste anything, only felt the soft flesh of the fruit between his teeth. John ate all the food in one sitting and washed it down with several gulps of water. For a few long minutes, he sat as still as he could, trying to avoid throwing up. When he was convinced that his body had handled the sudden intake of food and wasn't going to immediately reject it, he struggled to his feet and slid towards Megan's hypersleep chamber. What would she do when she woke up during the descent to Kepler and found not a box of raisins, but his body, slumped in the corner, gaunt and lifeless? In fact, he thought, by the time that the ship reached its destination, his body would be badly decomposed. Probably just a skeleton. Did bodies decompose the same in space, he wondered? And if so, what would it be like for Megan to wake up in a tiny floating tomb that reeked of her husband's rotting corpse? She may find another husband on Kepler, and start a new life there like the two of them had planned to do. She would surely remember waking up next to her dead husband. It would be tragic for her, but her life could go on. Everything was going perfectly according to protocol inside of her chamber. John wished that he had been put into her chamber instead, and it felt wrong, as if someone else was thinking it, and he shuddered. Because he had thought it, and it was true. He did want to switch places. And what would happen if Megan were in his shoes? Would she wake him up? He couldn't think of a more selfish act. Megan would not do that. It was not in her nature. John did not know what was in his nature. 
All he knew was how peaceful Megan looked, how blissfully unaware she was, laying there behind the icy glass. John sat back at the edge of his chamber and looked at Megan for what felt like an hour. He thought about when they had moved into their first apartment together, a basement apartment in what had been the industrial district of old Detroit. She had always insisted on keeping a vase full of flowers in their front window, despite how brown and dreary the rest of the apartment was. John remembered thinking about how Megan was a bright spot in the neighborhood and in his day-to-day life. She would wake up and leave for work well before John's alarm went off, and she would slip little notes into his lunchbox like his mom had done when he was in grade school. John was not religious. He had a Christian aunt in Appleton that he rarely saw. There were a lot of religious people left in Wisconsin, his mother had told him. John thought back to the Christmases of his youth and tried to remember how his aunt had prayed. He managed to recall a few fragments of things that sounded vaguely correct, but nothing substantial. He put together the few pieces he could remember and prayed out loud, his voice echoing harshly in the small chamber. He prayed to God, he supposed, or whoever could help him. He was probably outside of God's communication radius, too, he thought. Did God even exist out here? Perhaps he had defied God by straying so far from earth. Maybe it was so that God had no jurisdiction here and could be of no help. He stopped praying. He was on his own and in unknown territory, or more accurately, not even territory at all, just floating through a void. He was out of his depth. He had come too far too fast for his brain to evolve to even comprehend the situation he was in. He spoke to the walls and said that he would do anything, change his entire outlook on life, if only a larger ship would happen along their little vessel and come to investigate. When he said it out loud, though, and heard his words bounce back to his ears off of the dark bounds of the ship, he realized how stupid he sounded, so he stopped talking. He sat up in the dark silence for several hours. John Patrick was not ready to die. He was especially not prepared to die alone. The thought of never again hearing his wife's voice say his name made him tremble and weep. He stared at the tubes running into the top of her hypersleep chamber, at the smooth arc of the glass that stood frozen over her face. He pictured her waking up, how she would react. She would hate him forever. It was an unforgivable act. It was murder. He pictured them embracing each other, crying together, even making love together. They could hold hands and go to sleep together. He didn't have to be alone. He had a choice. But it was no choice at all, he knew. John sat there in the dark, hour after hour, and paced back and forth whenever his legs grew stiff. His thirst and hunger began to return, but he would not allow himself to finish the water. He was leaving some for Megan, just in case. He remembered how madly thirsty he had been upon waking up. But if he woke Megan up, he thought... He could guide her through it so that she would wake up as peacefully as she was now sleeping. No vomiting, no dizziness. She would be calm, too. She was always calm, even when John had lost his job. Even when their house in Dearborn had been repossessed, the starter home with the bay window that she was so fond of. She would know what to do in this situation, too. They had always been a good team, John thought. That's what he liked about them. He would guide her out of her hypersleep, and then she would have a better idea of how to handle the rest of the situation, and they could handle it together. That is how it should be, after all. John stared at her hypersleep chamber. He wanted to hug her, to feel her hair on his face. She could tell him that everything was going to be fine, and he might believe her. She would want them to get through this together. 
That was her favorite phrase, John thought. She truly believed that her and John could get through anything together. So why not this? Was this not the most important thing that they had ever faced? More important than mounting debt or when John had become pollution sick just after they were married? More important than planning their wedding or their long weekend vacations to Chicago or the forests of the UP? She would want them to get through this together, too. She would want this. John stood, his legs creaking. He moved silently towards Megan and placed his hands on the cold lid of her hypersleep chamber. His thumbs found the latch on the side of the lid, and his heart leapt. He drew several sharp breaths in through his nose. Looking down at Megan, he wanted nothing more than to talk to her and be with her, to exist together once more. Without thinking, he clicked the latches down in the lid, and the glass popped open with a sigh. A large breath of steam escaped from under the lid, and then everything was still. John lifted the lid on its hinges. He looked down at Megan, laying in between the steel walls, and saw her eyelids begin to flutter. John began to cry. <laughs>